Hey, what's up, everybody? Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley is presented by Domino's Hawaii, now promising contactless delivery to assure that your pizza is delivered safely to your door. Domino's Hawaii wants to thank its entire team for their efforts in staying safe, keeping sanitized, and working hard to serve our neighbors during these trying times. And a special thanks to you, the customers, for your continued trust. As a locally owned company, Domino's Hawaii knows there are people seeking work, and it is hiring as many in our community as possible right now. We're all in this together, so take care out there, and let's look forward to the next big sporting event where we can all gather and celebrate as one. All right, let's talk sports. Hey, what's up, Jordan? Get right to it because we have an interview with Jeremy Wu Yellen, fourth round pick by the Red Sox out of the University of Hawaii, uh, one of a couple of guys with Hawaii ties who were drafted in this abridged version, five-round version of the MLB draft. Uh, also, you have another guy with the University of Hawaii tie who signed a free agent deal, and we'll get to that here momentarily. But speaking of baseball, ESPN aired on Sunday night. Long Gone Summer, 30 for 30 documentary on the home run race in 1998 featuring Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. Uh, what was your takeaway from that doc? I know you watched it being a Cubby fan. I did. Yeah, I did. Um, I'll get to my complaints in a second. I thought it was fun. <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't think it was the hardest hitting 30 for 30 we've ever seen or anything like that. It, it really didn't dive into the controversial aftermath. Uh, that came from that legendary summer. I think it it served as sort of a feel good piece. Like it it, it celebrated uh, that amazing year in, in 1998, and it, it was kind of funny. Um, you know, for for some reason, you know, I was kind of a, a younger kid during that time, and you know, this is the the end of the Bulls' peak, and and somehow the the year that Michael wins his final title is also this year where Sammy Sosa hits 20 home runs in June, and so that. Uh, I, I don't remember those happening concurrently, um, but they did. Like That's June 1998. Um, so that was uh, something that was kind of a nice reminder uh, and just how fun that was as sort of this young, you know, naive, innocent sports fan um, and also spoiled as a Chicago sports fan at that point. It, it, they delve into it a little bit right at the end when it, when it comes to the, the steroids and things like that. But for a sport that was reeling, for a sport that had gone through the 94 cancellation, basically, everybody loved it. Everybody had a blast following that thing. The reception that those guys got in opposing stadiums uh, at that point, because it turns, right, just three years later with Barry Bonds in 2001, uh, where there was rampant speculation and rampant vitriol uh, from a lot of those places where he went and the, the Giants went, even though they were really good and he was really good. It, we, 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 we like to litigate after the fact, and, and that's a whole discussion. But, you know, in the moment, nobody wanted to hear about steroids. Nobody wanted to hear about cheating, quote unquote, or anything like that. It was just awesome to watch these two guys and Ken Griffey Jr., who I think maybe gets glossed over a little bit too much in this documentary, um, you know, chase this record um, that was as fabled as any in baseball. So I, I, I enjoyed it for what it was. My only complaint um, – I didn't get enough Sammy Sosa. Like, I get it. Mark McGuire set the record. Don't get me wrong. He was the one who actually finished with the, with the, the, the record at the end of that 98 season. But I felt like it was, uh, it was a little St. Louis, a little McGuire-centric 
uh, in that documentary. I needed more. I needed more Sammy. Spoken like a true Cubs fan, for sure. What I took away was just how much fun that was. Like that really, quite honestly, and I know that it has been sullied a little bit based on some of the uh, materials and evidence that we have at our disposal now looking back on it. But at the time, that had to have been the most fun I've ever had watching Major League Baseball in a single season. You had to find out what Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa did that day. You had to look at the box score. You had to watch the highlights on SportsCenter. You were just rushing to the TV to do so. Uh, and that happened a few years later when Barry Bonds was chasing it as well and eventually broke the record. And uh, that was a lot of fun too. But to have sort of this Cardinal, Cub, you know, rivalry battle, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, and to have that back and forth, right? I mean, every great hero needs an adversary, right? And, and depending on what perspective you were viewing this from as a Cards fan or a Cubs fan, you could look at the other guy as being the adversary and being the rival. And so it just made for a tremendous amount of entertainment value. The other takeaway I got, you mentioned Ken Griffey Jr. Um, I could watch a whole 30 for 30 documentary on his swing. That is the sweetest, most uh, aesthetically pleasing baseball swing there's ever been. Uh, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that 30 for 30. Just Ken Griffey and his swing. Right, and, and Griffey's kind of held up as the guy, I think, for some of the purists, right? Because he he hasn't been linked to some of the more nefarious elements of the late 90s baseball and maybe some of the artificial uh, enhancement that came with it, right? And His body and so didn't he, quite change the way some Yeah, of the not guys quite, did. not quite the same. And maybe it's because he had this swing that was just prettier than anything that's ever graced the baseball diamond, perhaps. Yeah, it's, it was fun. That's the thing. Uh, you know, they had Bob Costas in and he talked about, you know, we can sit here and debate morality and legality and all those kinds of things, but there is there is a bit of inauthenticity to it, right? When 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 you learn about it, I think that's that's a good way to put it. Because you, you look at I, I was curious and I kind of went back and there's only been five seasons of 50 or more home runs in the last 10 years, and this is the era where everybody's belting it out of the ballpark, right? The ball's flying out of parks. We're setting cumulative home run totals per team per per league over the course of years, and but we don't have anybody coming close individually to 70 or anything like that. So it's like, well. If we're in the era where everybody's hitting home runs and nobody can scratch 60, it's like, well, yeah, probably. There was probably something going on. There was probably something going on in the 90s. There, there was some advantage gained for sure. Uh, I remember a few years later when it was there was a showdown, and the video is even hard to find now on the internet because I think Major League Baseball has tried its best to like scrub this away from memory. But you had Eric Gagne, pitcher for the Dodgers, and Barry Bonds, who was pursuing the home run record. And they were both just looking back on it and based on what we know, I think we can make a, an educated guess that these guys were both pumping up on something. Right. And so it was basically uh, Sam Spangler, our buddy describes it like this too. It was basically just like this science experiment that was occurring on the baseball field for millions to see. And it was Gagne blowing like 200 mile an hour fastballs and Barry Bonds hitting them foul, like 700 feet until finally he took it yard uh, within the foul poles and it's just like this crazy concoction of like chemical baseball and it was wild uh, and boy was it a lot of fun I think is the is the conclusion that we can draw like I know it was wrong and it was as you said nefarious but uh, gosh that was a lot of fun to watch and it's unfortunate that we can only look back on it with a certain 
a level of acceptable nostalgia because, as you said, the authenticity of it is so in question. All right, that was quite a warm-up that we uh, performed there. Let's get to the game time now. And we'll talk more baseball. The Major League Baseball draft was held this past week, an abridged five-round version, uh, which led to two guys with Hawaii ties getting taken. In the fourth round, you had University of Hawaii's Jeremy Wu Yellen, who we'll be talking with in just a moment. He was taken 118th overall by the Red Sox. He has already said he intends to sign. Uh, Waikea's Kalei Rosario, uh, he was picked in the fifth round, 158th overall by the Twins. He's going to get over 300000 according to that slot contract amount. Uh, and you also had University of Hawaii's Carter Lowen signing a free agent deal, a big pitcher, 6'4", 230 pounds, with the San Diego Padres. So uh, pretty cool stuff, certainly, in what was a shrunken down draft to still have this kind of play from Hawaii guys. Uh, pretty remarkable. Uh, but what did you think about the trio of players with Hawaii ties who are going to be getting legit shots here uh, to uh, embark on their professional careers? Yeah, I, I think, as you pointed out, with the, with the short and five-round draft, to have two guys, uh, you know, with Hawaii ties drafted, it's, that's saying a lot. And, and I realized Jeremy Wu Yellen's University of Hawaii product, not necessarily, necessarily a Hawaii high school product, but that's, you know, I mean, there, there weren't a lot of picks to go around. Uh, and these two guys going, and, and Wu Yellen, and, and we'll hear from him, right? I think such an awesome story uh, where he really sort of developed himself through the collegiate process some of the summer ball on the Cape and, and really turned himself into uh, a top five round prospect. And he's got some family up there in the Northeast. So it's a pretty cool uh, uh, a deal for him as well. And then, I mean, it's the Red Sox, right? The, it's one of the, the storied franchises in all of baseball. And then for Coletti Rosario, you know, he had some collegiate opportunities. Um, he was, I think, a guy right on the borderline, right? Was he going to be he seemed like definitely a top 10 round prospect, but in a draft where there's no sixth round and beyond, um, you know, he's in a real pickle, right? It's like, hey, because he can't sign as an undrafted free agent for more than $20,000, if he doesn't get drafted, does it really make sense for a high school kid um, that could be in position for a much bigger signing bonus to sacrifice that or go to college, uh, play that route? Uh, and I think, you know, his decision in a lot of ways uh, perhaps made for him the fact that he was drafted, you know, just before the end of the five round draft what was it just a couple of picks, three picks or something like that uh, by its organization in Minnesota, who apparently loves players who have played baseball in Hawaii, uh, you know, uh, including Riley Waddell, the, the Kinke Kalika graduate here on Maui, amongst many others uh, that have been signed by the twins organization over the course of their history, Kurt Suzuki as well. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, great spot for him. Great spot for him. He is a power bat for sure. Uh, and a uh, chance to now go swing, uh, swing the big stick uh, up in pro baseball. Yeah. Uh, aforementioned Sam Spangler, also a guy who mm -hmm. played in the Twins uh, organization. Yeah, I think it's pretty remarkable. And, and sort of as another side story to the Jeremy Wu Yellen pick was the fact that uh, the area scout for the Red Sox, who scouted directly uh, Jeremy Wu Yellen is J.J. Altabelli, and you may recognize the last name. His dad, John, a legendary coach at Orange Coast College. But his dad, his mom, and his sister were on the helicopter that killed Kobe Bryant and Gianna, uh, his daughter, when it crashed earlier this year and was one of just many really tragic events that have occurred here in 2020. Uh, but considering all that, it's a pretty big deal for a team, a franchise, to take the recommendation of an area scout, certainly as it pertains to a player that maybe wasn't 
uh, high up on the rankings list according to some other organizations and or publications. And so it was, I think, a, a sign of great faith in J.J. Altabelli. And, and you, we've seen some articles that have been written uh, where he refers to this pick of Jeremy Wu Yellen as being a special moment for him. Uh, but pretty remarkable stuff, I think, to have Wu Yellen tied to the Altabelli family who have been through so much tragedy this year. And for J.J., uh, the son of John Altabelli, area scout for the Red Sox, to have that moment in this shortened version of the Major League Baseball draft. I think it's, it's pretty stunning and pretty remarkable for sure. Uh, all right, so uh, let's move on now to the hardwood. Mixed response we're hearing from players regarding the return of the NBA. Remember, they're scheduled to return at the end of July. They're going to have 22 teams vying for a 16-team playoff format. The games are going to be held at the Wide World of Sports uh, in Orlando. Uh, and so there are questions still about whether or not players as a whole are in support of doing this thing. And it's not just as it pertains to the coronavirus and the risk there, but on a recent conference call, Kyrie Irving, who is a ranking official in the Players Union, questioned returning amid the current atmosphere of the Black Lives Matter movement. Dwight Howard seconded that notion on Twitter, saying, yeah, you know, winning a championship with the Lakers would be great, but, you know, winning a championship for the Black community would be something even more important. Stephen A. Smith, however, called their comments foolish. Uh, you had Charles Barkley who said sitting out would be, quote, catastrophic. So you've seen this pushback on the idea that came from Kyrie Irving and, and that Dwight Howard supported that maybe the players consider not playing while all of this within our social environment currently across the country is taking place, that maybe they can better utilize their collective voices for something that is a little bit more profound and substantial in nature. What Charles Barkley, at least, is trying to suggest, and Stephen A. Uh, doing so a little bit more abrasively, is the stature that these guys have as voices within the community comes in large part because of their participation at the game of basketball, comes because of their status as NBA standouts or stars. And so to forfeit that platform as basketball players, Charles Barkley suggesting that's actually going to uh, deter from their voices being heard, that maybe they could actually turn the volume knob to a higher setting if they continue to engage in these conversations and this grand discourse across the country while playing basketball. Do you stand on either side when it comes to this issue, Jordan? No, no, I don't. I, I, I don't think I'm in any position to, you know, really strongly endorse or tell, you know, any of these athletes how they so choose to go about. Um, you know, I, I found it kind of interesting, right, that, that, that Kyrie Irving, and he, look, he, because of his stature, I think, in the league and the fact that, uh, you know, he's pretty high up there in the players' union, um, his name is going to be attached to a lot of this. Because there's been other guys that have spoken out, as you mentioned. Uh, Dwight Howard, Lou Williams, I think, has expressed some of those thoughts as well. Uh, but Kyrie's not a guy who would go anyway, just because he's he's injured at this point, right? Like a Kevin Durant. So I, I just, it's like, okay, well, maybe we need a, a, a different voice in terms of that. But I, I I wouldn't fault anybody, right? Because it, it really does feel like a certain tide is sweeping the nation, a certain collective, you know, awakening, if you will. Uh, there There seems to be legitimate momentum which I think is a great thing and so if players are going to choose this moment right to to forego basketball because there is something bigger in their mind 
for them to go achieve right now. I'm not going to fault any of them. Like, I'd love to see them all go play basketball. I'd love to see all 30 teams back. Don't get me wrong. But I think at this point, I think we've learned, right? There, there are bigger things going on. Um, there are more important things, more lasting things, more lasting change that can be enacted. And so I think, you know, there is a, a strong conversation to have amongst the players union as to how best to exercise their voice, how best to capitalize on the moment, whether that is doing it via the platform of isolated games in an Orlando bubble, or whether that is to take a stand and say, we're not going to play. We're not going to use that platform. We're going to be on the streets. We're going to be in people's neighborhoods, grassroots style. I, I, don't, I don't know what's more effective. I, I really don't. But I do know only 22 teams are going, right, to, to Orlando. And so I think that there's a, there's a really unique and pretty cool opportunity here for the players. And, and I think the league would be open. I, that's what we've seen so far from Adam Silver and the NBA they are, they are a partner in this, right? There isn't this adversarial relationship we have seen at times with the NFL, with Major League Baseball. There will be players who can go play in the bubble, and then there are players who don't even have that choice. Players with high-profile names, right? Whether it's players with the Timberwolves and all the work that Carl Anthony Towns and some of those guys in Minneapolis have done. Um, you know, players in Chicago, players in New York, players in big markets that, um, you know, didn't quite get the job done on the court, so they're not going to Orlando. They don't really have that choice. And so why can't it be a two-pronged approach? And look, that would be guys like a LeBron James, guys, you know, like a James Harden who, who would choose to, hey, that, that would mean, yeah, you're not going to be on the forefront. You're not going to be on the front lines, if you will. Uh, but I think there's a really neat opportunity for the Players Association to really look at it and say, hey, we're, why, let's do both. Let's take a stand on national, international television in Orlando on a platform of multiple games going on every day, multiple playoff games where we can project that message right into the living rooms of everybody who's going to choose to play basketball. And then we also got a coalition of players in cities across the country leading that charge as well. All right, moving on a couple other things. Uh, Zeke Elliott, one of several Dallas Cowboys and Houston Texans players, Jordan, to reportedly test positive for the coronavirus. How significant is this as we, you know, we're talking about the return of basketball, but you know, football's still waiting to get back to training and, and get back to full team workouts. How significant is this to that possibly happening or not happening? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good reminder that it's still out there, right? Uh, no doubt about it as, as we return to activity in all, all sort of realms of life. Um, it, it's significant for sure because this was bound to happen, I, I think, it, especially, you know, for the NFL, which isn't necessarily looking at a bubble situation like basketball, like Major League Soccer, uh, where you're, you're leaving it up to individual teams and things like that. So you're not necessarily operating in a quarantine bubble. Um, you know, we've, we've seen it pop up with different college um, programs as well, including the University of Houston, uh, which shut down uh, team activities for a period of time because a number of players tested positive. And so these things will happen. There will be positive tests, I think, going forward in a number of, of programs as we return. I, I, I think the question is, right, what's the plan once that happens, right? Players are going to test positive. What's the plan? Do things shut down, you know, like the University of Houston opted to do? Um, do you continue on? Do you keep testing, right? Uh, you know, we, we talked to um, Tyler Saladino, you know, over a month ago now, and he kind of told us what the KBO's standard operating procedure was going to be should a test come back positive or something like that happen. 
Um, you know, it's, it's a little more disjointed. It's a little more Wild West when it comes to the NCAA. Uh, with the NFL, I think they're still figuring it out as they go as well, right? So I think that's the, the bigger picture question, um, not just the, the fact that these guys got tested positive in isolation. Yeah, I guess Zeke's not going to be invited to any of uh, those uh, up-and-coming Dak Prescott party dinners, right? Not for two weeks, at <laughs> not least. for a little while, at least. All right, we move on to our Domino's Hawaii main topping. And uh, the main topping here for this episode is our interview with Jeremy Wu Yellen, University of Hawaii pitcher, drafted in the fourth round by the Boston Red Sox. You got to love it, right? Lefty who can throw 97, Jordan. Uh, that is pretty valuable. If he can work, as he says, on his consistency, uh, who knows how fast the track to the show may be for this guy. He's up in Spokane right now where he grew up. Uh, and so uh, we were able to talk story with him for a little bit. All right, Jeremy. So I know you've been through this a few times here in the last few days since your name was officially called and announced as a draft pick of the Boston Red Sox. Uh, but take us again through sort of that moment and when you first were notified that uh, your name was about to, to get called and your dream in, in large part was about to come true. Um, I mean, honestly, it was super hectic. Uh, you know, just the day leading up to um, the second day of the draft, I was getting a few phone calls and stuff, and uh, my advisor's just keeping me keeping me in the loop about what's going on. And then I found out while Boston was on the clock to make that pick. Um, I think it was about a minute 30 left, and my advisor texted my mom and me and said, welcome to Boston. Um, so, yeah, that, that minute 30 was probably the longest 90 seconds of my life. <laughs> and then – when you realized that, okay, this was official and, you know, this was happening, what took over you then? What, what kind of emotional sense did you have at that point? Um, I mean, it's kind of just a combination of a lot of things, like relief, uh, obviously, like, excited, ecstatic to be part of such a first-class organization. Um, you know, just really happy. Everyone around me was super excited for me. Um, and kind of didn't come down off that uh, – <laughs> for a while I mean I couldn't sleep at all that night um you know just all I could think about yeah and uh Jeremy did you have a sense that the the Red Sox were in play that they they had a pretty keen interest in you yeah um for a while now I've kind of had a, a decent picture of which teams were um you know seriously looking at me and uh so I knew I was pretty high up on their list yeah, you mentioned first-class organization. I mean, it's, it's one of the storied franchises in, in all of baseball. Does that, does that add to the moment a little bit for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, uh, what's actually works out is that my stepdad's entire family is from Boston. Um, so they're all East Coast. Uh, obviously, they couldn't be any happier about where I'm going. Um, so, I mean, you know, couldn't have worked out much better for me. Take us through a little bit of, of your approach to this offseason. Obviously, the, the season ended abruptly, and it wasn't exactly what you had envisioned for what en would end up being your last year in Manoa. Uh, but as the offseason was thrust upon you and it was time to start pondering, all right, what is my future going to entail? Uh, how much were you at that point already sort of resigned to the idea like, okay, I think, I think it's draft time for me. I think it's, it's, it's time to embark on my professional career. Well, I mean, obviously, it's probably the first thing that came into my head once uh... – you know, once we found out the season was canceled, because, you know, that's kind of what you work for. Like, from the beginning of the fall, um, you know, it was just in the back of my mind that this is my year to, um, to you know, take that next step. And, uh, you know, once once we found out the season was canceled, um, you know, kind of just in shock for a little while, um, you know, thinking about what the next move's going to be. And 
uh, to be honest, I, I didn't really know. Um, and even until the draft, uh, you know, there was still a chance that it could not happen. So, um, you know, just staying in shape and being ready for whatever the next step was. And, you know, I'm glad that the next step is professional baseball. Yeah, I mean, the fact that the draft itself was, you know, shrunken down to five rounds and it was just a whole different dynamic. I guess, what were your expectations? You said it was it was kind of hard to, to know exactly where you would go and, and, you know, different publications were ranking you at different spots. But, you know, what were your expectations going in? Well, I mean, you know, I'd love to say that I – I knew from the beginning I was going to go, but, uh, you know, I really didn't. It was kind of unsure. Like I could be one of those guys, um, probably going to be, you know, right on the edge. Um, so, you know, just a lot of, uh, a lot of anxiety leading up to it. Cause I, I had no clue and, um, you know, everything was up in the air. Um, but you know, now that it's here, uh, just couldn't be happy with the way things worked out. Yeah, Jerry, how, how would you sort of describe the, the, the ride that the last year has been starting, you know, with last summer in the Cape Cod League, where a lot of people said, you know, you, you had a really good summer and, and in part caught the eyes of the Red Sox sort of in their neck of the woods. Um, you know, what, what was that experience like? And, and how do you think that that helped develop uh, where you came into coming into the college season? Um, it was, I mean, definitely big, uh, you know, for maturity. I think everyone will tell you um, going 3,000 miles in the other direction of home. Um, and, uh, you know, a great experience, um, you know, great teammates and obviously great coaches in competition. And, uh, you know, I mean, as my coaches out there would tell you, it's kind of just a, a process of coming out of my shell a little bit. Um, and just, uh, you know, wanting to be that leader and, um, uh, leading by example more than anything. Yeah. And then of course that, that carried over to, to really good start this season. I mean, seven appearances in those 16 games or 17 games, I think it was that, that you guys played in total you were lights out, you know, sub one ERA in those 13 innings. What, what was the confidence level uh, as the season sort of unfolded early on? I mean, it, it looked like you had taken it to another level, not just physically, but I, I think from a confidence standpoint. Yeah. I mean, mentally it's always been, um, you know, a tough process for me. It's, you know, there was never any turning point, no, no click, anything like that. Just, um, you know, a long, slow process that um, uh, being mentally tougher and, you know, being able to trust in myself and then um, knowing that my teammates also trust in me. Now, you have participated in a number of different roles, certainly throughout your collegiate career, uh, coming out of the bullpen, uh, getting experience as a starter. Is there a role that you prefer that you're more comfortable with at this point? Um, I would definitely wouldn't say I have any preference. Uh, my only preference is winning. Um, you know, whatever I got to do to help win the game, that's what I'm going to do. And uh, I'm going to trust Boston's professionalism. And, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give them my all no matter what uh, path they want me to take. At what point throughout your development as a baseball player, just an athlete in general, did you kind of realize, oh, I got kind of a special arm here attached to me? When, when did that start setting in? Well, I mean... When I was in high school, I kind of had a couple guys tell me, you know, you, you, have a, you have a chance to do something special. And, um, you know, I don't think I believed them for, for at least a few years. Um, and going into college, you know, kind of just a lot of tools and, you know, things like that. People would say you can be good, but, um, you know, kind of wasn't ever really able to put it together. And, uh, you know, I think once I started having some success, maybe in the Cape, um, and was just able to, you know, build off myself, um, 
that's when I kind of realized that I have to believe it before anyone else does. Yeah, have um, kind of circling back to, to what Canole brought up, have the Red Sox given you any indication of, of the role that they envision for you? Um, I think ideally uh, I would project as a starter for them. Um, but, you know, my, my fastest pass to the big leagues is probably as a reliever. So um, I'm not, not completely certain what they, uh, what they envision for me yet, but um, I'm, I'm sure they would like to see me start and prove that I can do that. Yeah, I'm sure a lot, a lot of value either way. Uh, are, are there guys up in the show now that, that you sort of study and, and sort of may, maybe model after, whether, you know, it'd be technique or anything like that? Um, you know, I wouldn't say I, I model myself after anyone. Um, I think I'm my own pitcher, and I, uh, I can't emulate anything other than um, the best version of myself. Um, but, you know, I think that being said, there's also uh, – there's always work to be done as far as mental game goes, um, approach and things like that. Um, I can't think of, think of anyone off the top of my head that I would model myself after, but, um, you know, always improving. But your favorite player is Shohei Otani, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> what, what is it about uh, him that, that excites you as a fan? I mean, he's just, you know, awesome to watch. Uh, hits bombs from the left side, throws a hundred. <laughs> um, obviously not a lot of similarities between us, uh, <laughs> But um, I actually came to college as a two-way. Um, I was a hitter and a pitcher. And uh, seeing him do that at such a high level is, um, you know, kind of just uh, – I don't want to say a dream, but um, just uh, something I always wanted to do. And, you know, it's cool to see someone doing it at that level. Well, I mean, how cool is it now that you're taking another step towards possibly sharing the stage at that level and, and, and being able to play at the same uh, level – as a guy that, that you admire as far as his overall skill and talent? Uh, you know, it's honestly just a surreal feeling. It um, just feels like a dream I haven't woken up from yet. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it'll ever really hit me until I'm, I'm there with him. Um, and uh, even then, I mean, you know, I just couldn't ask for anything else. You know, it was kind of funny yesterday watching the um, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa 30 for 30, you know, I, he shared the story of how he went to USC and he thought he was going to be a pitcher. And then he turns into this power hitter. I was kind of curious. You, you brought up the fact that uh, you came to Hawaii sort of as a two-way guy. Did you have some big, big dreams of, uh, of being a, a guy that was going to swing the stick quite often? I definitely did. Um, you know, I mean, everyone, I think everyone that uh, could kind of see realistically knew I was, I, I was going to end up being a pitcher just because of the arm and all that. Um, honestly, I always thought of myself as a hitter first. Um, and a pretty good one at that. Uh, but, you know, I'm a pitcher now. No, no, it's, it's, it's definitely worked out for sure. Well, what yeah. do you take away from your time at the University of Hawaii? And, and we know it was cut a, cut a bit short, abbreviated, but uh, what's kind of uh, some of the, the fond memories you have as uh, you, you turn the page in this chapter of your career? Um, you know, just being around all my brothers every day and, uh, you know, coming in as um, – an 18 year old with not a lot to say and um you know kind of still looking to put things together mentally and physically um and just that whole maturation process um you know being around a lot of those guys just uh you know role models for me and um you know helping me helping me learn to take things in as they come and um you know keep myself in check um you know just couldn't ask for a better experience around those guys and Obviously, the coaches, um, Coach Trapp, Coach Brown, um, you know, a lot of, like, those guys just means the world. Um, 
what they saw in me before anyone else did. Um, you know, the fans, I wish I could go through and talk to all of them, uh, you know, individually and um, all those people just cheering for me every night. Um, it really means a lot. And that's something I'm going to treasure forever. Definitely. Well, it definitely reflects well on the program to have another guy getting drafted as high as you did and uh, certainly well-deserved. And I think part of what the fans always got out of you being on the mound was this just electricity, right? The being able to throw high nineties, isn't something that comes around uh, every day. And so that's certainly part of the, the God given assembly uh, of, of what you are as a pitcher. What else do you think you need to improve on here as you now take this step into professional baseball? Um, you know, there's consistency, uh, always something you can get better at um, being able to compete with, um, whatever I got every day in, day out. Um, you know, that's probably my biggest focus point. And then, you know, the mental aspect of things, um, I would say that's something I've taken a big step in in the last year. But like I said earlier, you can always get better. And, uh, you know, always trying to improve as far as um, just my mental state and uh, my competitiveness. Now, there's been a, a few articles written. This is really interesting, a, a connection that you have uh, to one of, the, the biggest stories that happened here in 2020, uh, you were scouted by J.J. Altabelli, whose dad, John, the legendary coach at Orange Coast College, uh, he, his wife and daughter were on that helicopter uh, that uh, crashed and also killed Kobe Bryant and his daughter, Gianna. Uh, but J.J. was the guy who scouted you. And so it actually is pretty significant when a team like the Red Sox in a, in a round as high as the fourth selects a guy who was recommended basically and scouted by uh, an area scout. And so uh, you guys have sort of been linked and, and this has been an obviously very difficult year for him. And so he's spoken about how special it was for him just to have the Red Sox take you at that position. How aware of that connection are you? And, and does that mean anything to you? Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously I, I can't even put into words how much it, it just means the world to my family and I, um, that he was willing to take a chance on a guy like that. Cause I know a lot of guys didn't really have me, um, you know, going that high and, uh, you know, didn't get seen as much as, you know, maybe I, I think I should have. Um, and just, uh, knowing that he's been watching from the beginning, um, for a long time and just, uh, you know, how much trust and, uh, belief he has in my own talent. Um, you know, it, it, it just means the world to me. And, uh, you know, I know my, my mom and my dad feel the same way. Yeah, Jeremy, I was kind of curious, you know, for, for those that aren't as familiar with the process, uh, how much interaction do you have with a guy like J.J., an, an area scout, or, you know, and what's that process look like as you're coming up as an amateur uh, and, and the, scarts, the scouts start coming around and, and making contact, whether with you or with Coach and, and some of your, your people? Uh, but what, what's that whole process sort of look like in the communication? Um. You know, to be honest, it starts out really slow, and then the the closer you get, the faster it goes. Um, you know, my first two years, I uh, didn't really get a whole lot. Just kind of, you know, every once in a while, I'd look up and see a guy, uh, you know, writing something about me, and then you know, get a letter every once in a while. And then my junior year in the fall, um, have a lot of meetings and stuff. One with JJ, I remember specifically. Um, and then as the season starts, uh, you got guys reaching out and say, hey, I'll be watching. Um, you know, good luck today and all that. Good job. And then, you know, obviously those last couple months with no baseball being played, um, scouts don't really have anything, anything much else to do than to uh, reach out and see how you're doing. Um, 
So, I mean, a lot of interaction in the last few months. And then the first couple of years, uh, to be honest, not very much. Yeah, it's always kind of interesting uh, to see how that journey unfolds. Um, what's it been like being, being back at home uh, in eastern Washington for, for maybe as long as you have spent, I would imagine, uh, in a few years being around family, uh, kind of recharging and getting yourself ready for, for Pro Bowl? Yeah, uh, I've been staying in shape, working out every day, um, you know, throwing as much as I can. Uh, not outside as much as I'd like to be. Um, it's it's pretty pretty darn cold here. What was growing up in Spokane like? I mean, was it always about baseball primarily, at least on the sports side for you? Or what was your upbringing like in, from that standpoint? Yeah, uh, you know, pretty much just baseball from the beginning for me. Um, played a couple other sports in high school and like up to high school and stuff. But, uh, you know, kind of knew from, from really young that baseball was what I was going to do. Um, and, uh, you know, Spokane, not a lot of focus on sports, to be honest. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of adversity, I think, for uh, not only myself, but, um, you know, my mom, who's been there for me, um, supporting me since, since day one. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, just thankful for her through it all. What did your mom say to you after you got drafted? Uh, I mean, it's kind of just um, a lot of I love you so much, and um, I don't really think she could get anything else besides that out. Um, you know, just uh, ecstatic overall and, you know, just a lot of emotion, um, not a lot of talking going on. Uh, that is awesome. Uh, you mentioned, um, you know, at some point you'll, you'll probably get down to Florida whenever – things get the the, the go-ahead for for some instructional ball perhaps some rookie league ball down there have uh, have you allowed yourself to kind of look down the road uh what florida may look like what uh, maybe some other stops along the ladder in the um in the red sox organization may look like in some of their minor league affiliates yeah i know they have a lot of teams in uh actually in the northeast um so you know i'll be i'll be decently close to uh my stepdad's family up there um and, you know, I, I think I'm ready for it. Um, and, uh, you know, I haven't thought too much about the future, but, um, you know, whatever comes, I'm ready. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, you, you bring up, you know, you, the maturity, uh, kind of finding your voice. Uh, what do you uh, sort of attribute that to? And, and um, you know, you mentioned, you know, in terms of finding your voice. So what, what do you think that, that lends itself to going forward? Um, you know, just uh, – being a guy that teammates look up to um, and, you know, um, see my, uh, see my mental game and my approach to just, um, you know, life between the lines and outside the field um, and just want to emulate that. Um, I want to do something similar. I'm always going to have a smile on my face. I'm always positive, um, you know, glass half full optimist, um, you know, always trying to stay up and big with my body language. And, uh, you know, I take pride in that being something that other people uh, look up to. Now, uh, you said that 90 seconds of that last sort of moment that the Red Sox were on the clock was maybe the longest 90 seconds you've ever experienced. Uh, the next few weeks, depending on how long it takes, you know, before baseball starts getting going and you can actually go to a facility and start working out. I mean, this might feel like a really long time. How are you prepared to just sort of maintain this patience that you've exhibited already? Um, well, you know, the way I look at it, I've been here for almost three months already. Um, and I've been working out every day, just trying to stay busy. And, um, you know, I'm going to do it as long as I can and as long as I can stay sane. Um, you know, it is going to be 
it's going to be pretty tough waiting for however long I have to because I just want to get started right away. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll stay in shape. I'll work hard every day. And, um, you know, whenever the time, whenever Pro Ball calls my name, I'll be ready. Well, we'll be watching and we'll be rooting you on, man. We really appreciate you giving us, uh, you know, some time and, and the chance to talk story. And, and congratulations once again. Uh, and best of luck here in your professional baseball career. Thank you. All right. Well, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, uh, our post game best and worst. Hey, for our listeners on Maui, we are holding out hope that the 18th season of the Maui Flag Football League will take place as scheduled this summer. The MFFL is a youth flag football league for boys and girls ranging in age from 3 to 18, broken up into divisions of seven different age groups representing five districts, upcountry, Wailuku, Kahului, Kihei, and Lahaina. The goal of the MFFL is to teach the game of football without the worry of violent contact, concussions, or weight cutting. It's all about having fun, being active, and making new friends while reinforcing important values like teamwork, perseverance, and respect for your fellow players and coaches. For more information on the Maui Flag Football League, please call 808-280-7513 or email mauiflagfootball at gmail.com and get signed up. All right, back to the show. All right, Jordan, post-game time. Best and worst. What is your best here for this episode of the show? That's right. We're starting with the best this time. Yeah, maybe, maybe times are, are looking a little more optimistic, right? We don't have to always end it with the best. My best, uh, I'm going to Colonial. Uh, we talked to Alex Urban last week. Um, the Charles Schwab Challenge, the first event back in like three months for the PGA Tour. Uh, did you see how jacked Bryson DeChambeau is? Oh, my goodness. I don't know what he was doing in quarantine. Well, I guess I do know what he was doing in quarantine. I don't know what everybody else was doing in quarantine. Some guys played. Some guys put the clubs in the, in the garage and didn't take them out until, like, last week. Uh, but Bryson DeChambeau was hitting the bench, man. My goodness. He looked like a 90s power hitter. He is swole. <laughs> and he was also piping drives, like, 330 minimum. And I was just like, my goodness. Uh, so, Bryson DeChambeau, uh, tip of the cap to you because the weight room, it was well used <laughs> That's while right. he was on the shelf. More like Bryson DeRambo. The guy My looked goodness. pretty huge. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, that was a pretty cool tournament. I was watching for sure. Uh, but that actually ties into one of my worst. We'll get to that in a moment. But my best is uh, we go old school vet of the MMA game, Tyson Nam with a KO of Zaruk Adeshev on UFC's Fight Night event Saturday. Just 30 seconds in, popped him with a right, knocked him out. 36 years old, this guy, Tyson, uh, icon sports veteran. I actually had the privilege of calling multiple fights of his back in the early stages of his career, 19-11-1 overall, always packed a punch, always a guy that could put the lights out. And so it's great to still see him doing damage on the biggest stage in the sport. So big shouts to Tyson Nam. Yeah, I was, I was watching that too. Uh, and boy, did he, did he make a big mark. Uh, that whole card was full of like, very short fights, at least in the prelims. Uh, but he put Adeshev out cold. Uh, and I got to be honest, man, Tyson Nam, I, they needed to remind me that he was 36 because I, I think a lot of local fight fans remember that name for a number of years. He looks like he's 18, man. The dude hasn't aged. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I, I don't know how he's avoided uh, some of the overall damage and wear and tear that other fighters in the game uh, are usually – uh, destined to exhibit by that time. Uh, he still looks, you're right, very fresh. And uh, boy, that was a fresh knockout. There's no doubt. Here we go. Worst. What's your worst, Jordan? Yeah, I, I stay at Colonial. Um, that 17th hole, 
And I don't mean the whole entire hole, like literally the cup. It, it, what happened to Colin Morikawa on the first playoff hole where it lips out, what happened to Xander Schauffele, who ends up finishing a shot back and would have made it a three-way playoff if that thing didn't horseshoe around from like four, three feet away. I think Morikawa's putt was three feet away. I want to say Schauffele's was like two feet. Um, and the thing was like down and then it popped and then it went back down in and then it popped out again. I thought we were playing with like the foam noodle, like like most weekend warriors are playing on on all these public courses around the country. Like I thought that's what happened. I thought maybe the PGA had put the foam noodle in and they, it bounced out of there. Uh, my goodness, I've never seen that. The amount of putts that just just were soul crushing uh, that didn't fall in. And plus it cost our guy Colin Marikawa a chance to to keep playing in that playoff. So yeah, my worst, that's 17th cup, man. Throw it away. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty brutal. Morikawa, who has ties to Maui. Daniel Berger ends up winning the event, but uh, you're right. There was some drama there. Uh, and if it had hit the foam, we know as weekend warriors, as rec golfers, that counts, man. If it touches Buckets. the foam or the pin. That's right. Count it. Yeah, absolutely. That's I was hoping that was the case. I was like, you got to count that, right? <laughs> like, what is this? This is ridiculous. Uh, my worst also has to do with the Charles Schwab challenge. Uh, but I'm looking at Jim Nance, uh, one of the very best in the biz. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but he botched a sponsorship live on-air read during the golf coverage. It was a Geico drop, as they call it. And he said Allstate. He mentioned Allstate. And so that's kind of a big snafu. Uh, but also for me, even though this is my worst, it's also kind of my best because it's always great to see the big dogs, right? And one of the best in the business. Just be human like the rest of us uh, want to be broadcasters once in a while. Yeah, we, we've all been there, right? Um, and if Jim Nance could screw that up, um, then I, I do feel better about myself for sure. Although we now know it, he, Geico is what he does, what he uses to insure his Buicks. That's right. It's clearly, it's clearly not. Oh wait, what did he say? He said Allstate, right? <laughs> he did. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so we know it's Allstate that he uses yeah. to insure his Buicks, not Geico. I mean, it it could not be more glaring when you mention a rival or competitor company for the drop-in that you're supposed to do. I mean, that's like being like, this is sponsored by Coca-Cola. I, I mean, Pepsi. You know, I mean, it's just you can't, you can't do that, man. I mean, we we have to be careful when we're. Uh, you know, giving shouts to our sponsor, Domino's. We're not trying to mess it up and mention a competitor. You know what I mean, Jordan? No ways. I'm loyal, man. <laughs> Domino's. Right. Same here. Thanks to them. Thanks. Of Free course. delivery. That's right. Contactless delivery. Uh, thanks once again, too, to Jeremy Wu Yellen. We appreciate him being so generous uh, with his time and best of luck to him on his professional career. We'll keep in touch with him for sure. Hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helley, or at TalkSports808. Uh, Jordan, been fun, man. Talk to you again soon. Sounds good, man. Looking forward to it.